All right, uh, we, if you have a Bible, we are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Um, we uh, are in an Advent season, so for the, uh, the, the rest of y'all, the, the four of y'all that were in here, you've already heard this, but the rest of y'all that just arrived, um, we're, we're in an Advent season uh, sermon, and so each week we've been preaching on different things. First week was hope, second week uh, was peace, this week We'll be preaching on our joy, and then the next week will be love, and then the last on Christmas Day will be Jesus. And so um, they're all about Jesus, but you know the white candle is Jesus. Uh, the white candle is not Jesus. The white candle points to, signifies Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. So um, we are today looking at joy, and so as we're looking at joy, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven. Um, I was just telling Joe between the services whenever he was going to preach hope. I was saying, hey, you should preach Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And I'm really glad he didn't because I got to study it this week and see and mine all the riches and depths of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I was telling, man, I'm so glad you didn't preach Isaiah 9. There's so much in there. I love I loved that, that text. So that's what we're going to be looking at is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. On You could also call it Joe's missed text. Um, Fudd's text he gets to preach. I'm just kidding. So um, the, the, the big idea that we're looking at will be joy. And so um, I want to pray, and then we will we'll take a look at the text. Um, but let's pray. Joy, uh, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this uh, gathering together of a church where we can look at the idea of joy. And I pray that all of us um, would stop and consider where our joy is pointed and directed towards right now. It's our Joy pointed and directed at things, at temporal things, at, at finally getting married, finally having children, finally having that job, finally getting a car, finally getting a house, finally, finally, finally. Is our joy pointed at these kinds of maybe good but temporal things instead of Jesus? And so as we look at this text and see the glory of the gospel, of the promise of Jesus 700 years before he even came, uh, and how the answer was Jesus for them, and the answer for, for us today is Jesus. <clears throat> that we would really do the hard work of thinking about our joy. And if there's any places in our heart that are reserved for joy in anything else besides Jesus, that we would realize this is idolatry, and that we would do all that we can to push our minds and hearts to find all of our joy in Jesus. Be with us now as we look at the text. Lord, I pray for myself. I am desperate for your help. I, I cannot preach without you. I can't do anything without you. So I'm desperate for you to come and uh, teach your word by the power of the Holy Spirit through me to all of our ears, including my own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, perhaps you're aware of this. Uh, I imagine most of you are, but if you're not, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, every year, for 18 years, um, 17 years, not the very first. Uh, we, Christy and I have been married for 18, so not the very first year. But every year after that, we've gone and bought a, uh, a real Christmas tree. Um, wherever we live, we go. And here in Rock Hill, we go to Penland for the last, I don't know how many years. We get moved here in 2004, whatever that is. So every year we go there, and you know, you go and... You, you have to chop it down. I'll let my kids try to do the saw, but, you know, eventually I have to get down and get my knees wet and, and do it. And then after that, you look for the 
the cart or you look for the man to throw it on his truck and he takes it up to you and he sticks it in the little thing and, it, you know, the shaking thing happens and you're like, I really hope that thing works. And then they send it through. Well, this particular year, we lost it. Whenever we cut it down, I mean, I, the truck picked it up and I didn't see it for like an hour. I didn't know where it was. And we were looking all over the place. And so every year I always make sure that they stick it in the shaker. And after it happens, I'm like, hey, and like, do that some more. And so I always do that every year. I'm that guy. And, but I, I want to be that guy. Uh, and I didn't do it this year, and that was the beginning of the end. Um, so I had, uh, on Monday, I had uh, a, an early meeting, a couple pastors in town, and as I was meeting, extended meeting, um, <clears throat> after that I went to lunch, I was at Chick-fil-A, and I just ordered my food, and I got a, I would, um, hysterical is to say it lightly, phone call from my wife, I just got to, I got to leave, and I'm like, I need some context behind I got to leave, I don't what? What are you talking about? I got to get out. You got to get out of here. What does that mean? And then she's like, this is what she says. There's praying mantis everywhere. And I'm like, what? What, what now? And she, she says, there's like 200 praying mantis in the apartment. And I'm like, what? And I'm, I'm, I'm met with a moral dilemma because I just ordered my Chick-fil-A sandwich. And it's Chick-fil-A, you know? And you're like, man, what do I do here? I really want to eat this Chick-fil-A sandwich, but also... I got to go help because there's apparently 200, so I ate the Chick-fil-A sandwich, and then, um, that is true, I did eat it, but fast, I mean, you can, just really fast, Uh, and then when I got there, um, I walked in, and my children were dressed for battle, they they had their faces covered, and ski hats on, and long sleeves, and gloves, and Karis had socks over her hands, um, and they were all on top of, like, our our couch is against a wall, on top of the couch, in fetal position, and screaming crazy, and they were absolutely all scared, Um, so apparently what happens is uh, we go every Friday after Thanksgiving, uh, on opening day, of course, um, and get a Christmas tree, and uh, my my schedule that Friday is go get the Christmas tree, day after Thanksgiving, go get the Christmas tree, bring it home, go to Black and Blue Football Friday, that's what I do for the last seven years, Um, so... Uh, what happens is praying mantis, whenever their little eggs are hatched or laid or whatever, um, there's a lot in them. We Googled, there's like 200 to 500 per thing. In the cold weather, they won't, they won't hatch. So, uh, but when they come into a warm apartment after a couple weeks, they will. And there were 200 or so praying mantis in our apartment, literally everywhere. The, the apartment people had come and tried to help and left by the time I got there. Um, one of the guys, three of them were in there. They're like jumping at him. And the apartment lady was screaming. Christy said it was kind of funny. One guy's like collecting them and putting his drawer. I'm picking these home. Like, all right, buddy. Those are all yours. Anyway, so uh, when I get in there, I just grab the Christmas tree, yank it out. And he's been excommunicated for, the, for about a few days. He just has to sit out on the porch for a few days and take everything off. So hopefully the cold would kill everybody. And so that was on Monday. And... The vacuum cleaner was running. We're, we vacuumed them all up. Um, this hurts some, some people's feelings. Yes, we vacuumed up the praying, baby praying mantis. Um, and there were 200. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I'm just not going to shoo 200 praying mantises out the door. They're going to get vacuumed up. I gave them a chance. If they can survive the vacuum cleaner and the garbage, then they're free to live. Um, but anyway, uh, so we, we got them all out. Uh, but after two days, we brought the Christmas tree back in. Of course, that meant bring more praying mantis back in. And so uh, all the way up until Friday, all the way up until Friday, we were 
getting rid of praying mantis in the apartment. We haven't seen, I didn't see any yesterday. Uh, but as we got the Christmas tree out and I, we were vacuuming them up and we thought they were all out. One landed on JC on Thursday and, you know, she about had a heart attack. Uh, after everything was out and we finally thought it was over, we were still feeling despair. We, we were feeling uh, down and gloom and despair. It was, it was a troubling time for us and we needed some hope. We needed some joy. We needed some light. We, need, we needed the Lord's presence to be with us because of this unsettling situation. All right, so that's really what happened this week. But I wanted to tell that story to try to help us understand in some kind of very slim fashion what's going on with the Israelites right here, all right? The, the gloom and doom and anguish that, that you would maybe feel in that particular moment, which is not really elevated too much, but it is kind of serious, um, is going on here. The, the Israelites have had hundreds and hundreds, several, several years of kind of falling away in disobedience of God and not following Him to where they brought themselves to this point where uh, the Lord's judgment is going to be upon them. And with the Lord's judgment being upon them, uh, the Assyrians are going to be allowed to come in and just ruin their land and take it over and send them into exile. That, they know that's coming. They are about to be squashed. That's what's happening. And when that's about to happen, they are just like me, needing joy and light and hope and some peace and some, some kind of word from the Lord to give them a calming, to give them future hopeful joy. They need the Lord's presence with them. And so, as the Assyrian army is sure to come in, uh, this is 700 years before Jesus is going to be born, and, and take the city from them, the prophet Isaiah comes to them and gives them a word of hope. And the word of hope is, there's going to be a Messiah born one day. Now, it happens 700 years later. But that's, that's what the Lord did. And their immediate time of need where they're surely going to lose their land, God didn't say, hey, let me go ahead and get rid of the Assyrians for you and I'll make everything right right now in your, in your lifetime. The word of hope from God, who knows everything, spoke into this particular time 700 years ago to the Israelites. They were going to lose their land. The encouragement he gave them is, uh, 700 years from now? He didn't, say, he didn't tell them. But there is a coming Messiah. A baby's going to be born and he is going to set everything right. Why would God choose to have that be the message of hope? That, in the immediate context, doesn't seem hopeful. It doesn't seem joy-filled. But if we can just take our one step back and think to ourselves, if he's God, and he knows everything, and the way to give hope to these desperate people and their situation, therefore, which is... Because he's God, the best answer, I'm going to, God's saying, I'm going to set all things right. The, the tra- trajectory of history is going to end with God making everything right because of the coming Messiah. Your situation right now doesn't seem very hopeful, but the way I'm going to make it hopeful is not even in your lifetime, but give you a promised Messiah that you can trust and have faith in and put all your hope in for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. That way, all of your human history, all of your life will be set right. That's the answer for, him, for them. That means in our tragedy, where we feel hopeless, where we need peace, where we need the light, and if your marriage isn't going well, or your, 
your situation with your children, or you can't find a job, or you don't like this city, or you don't like that city, you're never going to graduate, or whatever situation that's happening with you, if this is the word that the Lord speaks into the Israelites 700 years before Jesus is born, this is the same word that the Lord has for you today. No matter what the situation is in life, the answer is the good news of Jesus. The answer is the gospel. This is the message he gives them. He tells them that he wants them to understand that even though they're going to be overrun, because they already are overrun with sin, that uh, they have no hope, seemingly no joy, and no light. Hope and joy and light is coming. Specifically, in the form of a baby. And he will set everything right. Now, this week we're talking about joy. So the premise of this entire sermon is this. God is after your joy. Now, we've got to be careful when I say that. Because I don't mean joy as in, in joy in joy. God, God's not, the object of your joy is not joy itself. The object of your joy is not Him giving you stuff. The object of, of your joy is not Him making life better for you now. The object of your joy is Jesus. So the premise of the sermon is that God is after your joy specifically to be in Him. So as I'm studying this week, I'm thinking, i got to talk on joy. Who better do I go see? Uh, it's difficult to read Edwards. He's very hard. But Piper makes Edwards very easy. So I go read Piper as he writes on Jonathan Edwards. Because more than anybody, Jonathan Edwards uh, lived this life where he's, he understood having his highest joy in Jesus. And this is how Piper, one, one, wor- one sentence jumped out at me. And I, this helps for us as our, the premise of our sermon. God's after your joy. Listen to this. This is so key. God is glorified not... Most by being known or dutifully obeyed. Those things are important. But he's not most glorified by being known. As in, you can memorize every verse in the Bible. You know every doctrine there is in systematic theology. He's not glorified most by just being merely known or just being obeyed. You obey every command of the Old Testament and New Testament. While he is glorified through that... He is not glorified most by just you knowing who He is and obeying Him. Hear this, there's something deeper. He is glorified most by being enjoyed. It's the same thing, think of your marriage. If you just know the facts about your spouse and you do what they ask, well, that's a lifeless marriage. What your spouse wants is for you to enjoy them. Enjoy being with them. Enjoy that they're your spouse. This is the same thing. Your God doesn't want you to just know facts about Him and doesn't want you to just obey the things He says. He wants you to see and understand that you were created that your highest joy would be found in Him and Him alone. This is the premise of the sermon, that God is after your joy. The Advent season, the the first coming and the eventual second coming of Jesus is about God coming after your joy. Now, I quoted Piper, and you could say, well, that's not, I mean, that's not the Bible, Fudd. I know. Therefore, I have a sampling of numerous verses that I'm going to read to you from all over the scriptures about how God is after your joy. You, you could find, an, I don't know how many there are. There's probably 15. You could find a whole other 15. You could find seven more sets of 15. 
But I want to read you these. Just so that we understand, I'm not just making this up. But this is really from the Lord that he's after your joy. And you may already, everybody here, I already agree with you, Fudge. You don't have to read them. I'm going to read them anyway. Because the best sermon is the Bible and less of me talking. Like, if you need to hear a good sermon, a praying man's story versus me just reading you scripture doesn't measure up. Like, if I read you scripture the whole, the whole sermon, that's way better than me telling you any stories. And I'm going to tell you some stories. All right, so here we go. Psalm 4-7. You would put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. When they have all kinds of wine and they're partying it up and they have all kinds of food and everything's great and it seems like they're joyous, you've put more joy in my heart than even them. That's what God can do. Psalm 47.1. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So when we sing, even if you can't sing in key, you still should sing loud. Um, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. I read this at every wedding. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That means uh, you, you don't have an apartment, you can't go to Publix, you ain't got no money, you're eating ramen noodles barely, you got no car, you maybe not even have a job, like you just got married, you're broke, 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 broke. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. My hope's not in stuff. My hope's solely in God and God alone. Luke 2.10. This comes from the Advent narrative from the Gospel of Luke. An angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that, you will, be for all, that will be for all peoples. The Lord is after our joy, even at the coming of Christ. Luke 6.23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I want, I want, I want, I want one day to see us literally leaping for joy. I, I've never seen it. I've never seen anybody see, so, so joy that they literally just have to jump up and down. But leap for joy. Rejoice in the day. Leap for, for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Romans fourteen seventeen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. And peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Second Corinthians one twenty four, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Second Corinthians two three, this is almost like transfer joy from the Apostle Paul. And as I wrote, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Galatians 5.23, it's in the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Philippians 1.25-26, convinced of this. This is Paul talking to the Philippian church. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Picture, you're so joyous that when someone describes what's going on in that person's life, they're glorying in Christ Jesus right now. That's an unbelievable amount of joy because of my coming to you again. Second, 2 Timothy 1.4, As I remember you, I long to see you that, my joy may be, that I may be filled with joy. Um, James 1.2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't... Though do you, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Listen to that description of joy. Rejoice 
with joy, I don't know how else you could rejoice, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. You're so joyous, someone says, could you tell me about that joy? You just, I can't even, I've got no words. I can't even describe it. 1 John 1, 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Last, Jude, it's chapter 1, but it's, there's only one chapter, so 24. Now to him is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy. The Lord is clearly after our joy. And in this dire moment in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, it's very dire. The Assyrians are going to take over... Um, He wants them to understand that even though they're about to be totally squashed and taken into captivity, this is absolutely going to happen. He is going to promise them this. Your God can be trusted. You can can trust Yahweh. You can trust God. He's going to fulfill His promises. And this earthly kingdom that you're holding so desperately on, it's nothing compared to the eternal kingdom That he's going to set up and his righteous ruler will sit on that throne forever. So as you're fretting because your earthly kingdom is falling. The good news is there's a baby coming. And he's going to set up an eternal kingdom. So he's speaking into their situation with the gospel. Let's read Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9 starting at verse 1. You need to note verse 22. Um, We're going to come back to this in a second. But uh, one is like this transition verse. Uh, He just painted a major picture of gloom and uh, distress. Verse 22, and they will look into the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. He's describing the, the, the darkness that's coming. And then he holds out hope here in verses 1 through 7. And so, but for the people of God... Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. You were in anguish, but there will be no uh, gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the land of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. I'm going to explain all that, I promise. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, and here it is, the uh, famous Christmas verse, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, says this. Regarding the last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ray Ortland says, The most weighty words in this text come at the very end. God is zealous 
what God will accomplish will occur with a zeal from the heart of no one less than the Lord, the Yahweh of hosts. His passion is driving history, all of history, toward the final triumph of grace and the messianic kingdom. Therefore, this describes God's passion for the salvation of his people. And he's looking at them. And imagine the despair that they're feeling knowing that the Assyrians are going to come and just take over all of it. He promises them, and then at the very end, he looks at them and he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's going to happen. You can bank on it. One of the most important, perhaps, lines in there, and the rest of it is just unbelievable gold. So here we have uh, the promise of the light of Jesus being shown into this dark world, uh, helping them understand the coming Messiah. So the first thing I want you to see is this. The promise of Christ's kingdom brought light into darkness. Brought light into darkness. As the Assyrians are coming, uh, there's a metaphor being employed about light shining into darkness. It says, but there would be no gloom for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea of um, by the way, they see the land of the Jordan, Sea of the Galilee, and it says here, the people who walked in darkness, talking about the Israelites at those time, um, have seen a great light. So what he's doing is he's looking into the future. And so he's, it, just picture it this way. Um, you're looking into the future. Now he's going to walk kind of down the corridors of time, and he's going to pass the instance that he's talking about in the future, and he's going to keep going down the corridors of time, and he's going to look back at that future event like it's a past event and talk about it. That's how he's describing it right now. So they're way back here in the year 700 uh, B.C. And he's looking forward to Jesus' coming. That's happened in the future. But then he's really, as a prophet, going beyond that and saying that past event of Jesus' coming, he's describing that. So he's looking forward to the future, talking about it as if it's in the past. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those people, all of Israel, have seen a great light, and that's Jesus. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has, um, has light shined. Now, I want to be clear here that this metaphor of light is talking specifically about Jesus. If you look at John uh, chapter 1 in the prologue of John, starting at verse 4, uh, John m- doesn't mix any words here. He tells us exactly who the light is. John chapter 1 says this, In him was life, and the light was the light of men. We know from verses 1 through 3, he's talking about the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him and by him. Not anything was made that was not made. So we know that he's talking about Jesus at that particular time, who was the Word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome light. And he's saying that Jesus is the light. There was a man sent from from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light whom is Jesus, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, John, but came to bear witness about the light, Jesus. The true light, Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So here when we're talking about, in Isaiah 9, about this light, without question, it's talking about Jesus. Now, we're going to see that it's talking about Jesus when we get to verse 6, no question. But right now, as we're looking at verses 1 and 2, the promise of Christ's kingdom is bringing light into darkness. Zebulun and Nephtali had, um, had darkness brought into them. And the answer for them and the answer for all of Israel as the Assyrians are coming in is uh, 
light is the, is the, the answer is the good news of Jesus that he's coming and bringing to them. So what I want you to do is I want you to understand how the gospel light is going to come in. It's going to, as the gospel light's coming in, it's going to transform a place and it's going to transform a people. The first you can see is the place, uh, Zebulun and Nephtali, the light of the gospel is going to transform this gloomy places of Zebulun and Nephtali into glorious places. So I want you to see this. This is, this is astonishing. Um, if y'all remember when we preached through the book of Matthew for like four years, um, whenever we were in chapter 4, if you remember, Matthew's written primarily to Jews, and as, and as such, since it's written primarily to Jews, Matthew is quoting the Old Testament all the time. I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 12. Remember, God has brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. The reason why is these tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, these are of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, Instead of obeying God's command and running out all of the Canaanites that had come into their particular land, um, all the pagan people, instead of running them all out and staying a pure uh, people of Israel, they let some of the Canaanites hang around in, in, their, in their cities, or in their, in their tribes. And when they did, uh, what ensued after that were mixed marriages where Canaanites would marry Israelites. And then what happened was syncretism. If you're not sure what syncretism is, you take... Uh, you take a religion, you take another religion, you kind of blend them together, and that's syncretism. So the God of Israel, the God of Isaac and Jacob, um, the true God of all gods, allowed these Canaanites to stay in, and eventually in a couple of generations, some of the Canaanites married Israelites, and there became this syncretic kind of mixed marriages where uh, they should have kicked them out, but now, because of this syncretism, these next generations have this watered-down devotion to God. And so because of that, now... Zebulun and Naphtali have brought contempt upon themselves because they didn't choose to obey God, but they chose to let syncretism happen and let their watered-down devotion happen. And so contempt came. But there's a promise. Assyrians are coming in. All this is happening because of you, Israel. You brought contempt. But here's the promise to Zebulun and Naphtali, but that latter time he's made glorious by the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness, those people... I've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Listen to this. Matthew. The promise happened 700 years later. But it does happen. And the light isn't just the message of Jesus. It's Jesus himself. Matthew 4, 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went up and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Jesus specifically went to these places to fulfill this particular prophecy in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in deep darkness have seen great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And then from that time, how did it dawn? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here we have the promise of the gospel coming and transforming this gloomy place into a glorious place. Fulfilled 700 years later. The gospel transforms gloomy places into glorious places. It did it with Naphtali and Zebulun, and it can do it in Rock Hill. 
You can do it in your home. The answer for you right now in this city is the gospel. Not only does it transform gloomy places into glorious places, it transforms gloomy people into glorious people. Notice this, where it says in verse 1, And he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. Matthew, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us fully understand exactly what he means when he says, quoting Isaiah 9, People have seen deep darkness, only them a great light. Oh, I'm sorry. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Every person in this room, likely, we're all Gentiles, have been transformed by the gospel if you're in Christ. Therefore, he doesn't just transform cities. He transforms every Gentile in this room from a gloomy or from a terrible dark place into a glorious place. This is what the light of the gospel does. The promise of Christ brought light into darkness, not just their city, but into specific people. And he's done it for you as well if you're in Christ. For those that are believers in Jesus, on them light has shined. ESV study Bible says it this way. Not subjective wishful thinking has happened, but objective surprising joy breaking upon sinners now is the grace of Christ. He changes people's lives. Every single one of us. The light has shined. The first thing that we see in uh, verses 1 and 2 is that the promise of Christ being spoken to the people of Israel brings light into darkness. The second thing is this. uh, The promise of Christ being spoken to the people of Israel some 700 years before Jesus. The promise of Christ coming brought hope into hopelessness. It brought hope into hopelessness. Now... I want to read for you again the hopelessness that had just been told to them um, in Isaiah 8. If you look at verse 8, starting at verse 18 with me, it says this. For behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? When people tell you to go seek after psychics... And try to get their answers. Shouldn't you not do that? Shouldn't you instead go to God? And then it says, Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teachings and to the testimony. That's where they should go. They should go to the Lord's teachings. Not to these necromancers and mediums. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. So now these people have not sought after the Lord. They sought after these necromancers. And so when that happens, they don't speak according to his word, God's word. They speak according to their own uh, devices. And when they do that, they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. They didn't seek the Lord. And when they don't seek the Lord and they seek their own worldly way, what happens is they speak only according to their own knowledge, and now they have no dawn. They have no light. They have no promise. They have no hope. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. Not only that, listen to this. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They didn't seek the Lord. It didn't go their way. And so they rage and, and, and scream at God. Why is it going like this? Because you never sought God in the first place. So they they don't understand. There's a continuing kind of snowball effect that brought them to this. And then it says, they'll speak contemptuously against against their king and their God, and they'll turn their faces upward, and they will look into the earth. They won't 
now look at the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. 8.22. That's it. Like, can you imagine if they didn't have 9, 1 through 7? If they didn't have, but there will be no gloom for her who are in anguish. If there wasn't this promise of, but the Lord is somebody you can trust, and he is going to send his son and bring hope into that hopeless word that was just spoken to you in chapter 8. And these are the messages of hope in chapter 9, kind of juxtaposition to chapter 8 of hopelessness. Here's the hope that you get in chapter 9. There's a few of them. They're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. We just heard horrific hopelessness in chapter 8. And then he's going to speak to them with hope by saying in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. How? How is the nation... You have Israel. The hope of the gospel that's being spoke here is that now there is an inclusion of pagans who are not a part of Israel, but instead Gentiles, inclusion into the family of God. You have multiplied the nation. Gentiles. You and I, the first word of hope being spoken to them is Gentiles now can be included into the family of God. Just position this crazy message of hopelessness in chapter 8. The first thing he tells you is, take hope because Gentiles will be multiplied now and included into the family of God. The second hope that he gives them in this, mess, in this uh, kind of realm of hopelessness that's given in chapter 8 is that they also have reason to celebrate. They have reason to celebrate. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. So the message of the hope of the gospel in chapter 9 is telling them that you also have much reason to celebrate and joy. Why? Why do they have that? Remember, I've said the whole time, this is all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. All right, so uh, before we had grocery stores when we could go to Publix or Harris Teeter and Earth Fair and pay way too much for food, um, like before that, we had to grow wheat. They had to grow their own food, right? They had to grow their own food. If they wanted to eat, they had to work the land. They had to grow their stuff. They had to kill their animals. And if all that, if, if rain would come and it wouldn't freeze and everything happened that day, at harvest day, they would say, Woohoo! We get to eat this year. Because that means what? This year, we get to live. We don't die. If, if, if that doesn't happen, if they don't get enough rain and they can't find food in the famine, or if, if everything freezes and there's no harvest, everybody knows we're going to die. And so whenever the harvest would come, they would rejoice because they knew that means life, at least for another year. That's exactly what the gospel is telling us. So when we see what's the hope of the gospel, it means celebration of joy. It means celebration of joy because we have life. When it says, notice this, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, for as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In the same way that food actually came forward this year and they're all going, woohoo, let's have a party. We all get to live this year because we have food. Amplify that about a billion times and we rejoice because we say, we don't have to die spiritually. We get to live spiritually forever. So let's rejoice in the same way that they rejoice because they got to eat and live that year. 
amplified to the nth degree, we should rejoice because we get to live spiritually because Jesus is our food, Jesus is our portion forever. So there's hope help out, held out for them in hopelessness because they're included in the family, but also because they get to live spiritually. They get to live. The gospel is all in this. Not only that, there's hope being held out in here because they're now free from bondage. They're free from bondage. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor has been broken as it did in the days of Midian. There is language of burden, language of staffs on shoulders, shoulder-bearing weight, language of rod and oppressing. And he's saying, that's broken. The, the oppression that you feel right now seems hopeless. But you want to hear some hope? That's going to be broken run, one day. And you will have um, freedom from this bondage. All these things that are being described are instruments that describe how the people have been forced into these heavy burden that the Assyrians are going to put on them. Assyrian. It was working in, in uh, every time I said Assyrian, uh, everybody's Siri thought I was saying, hey, Siri, and I kept hearing, Doo-doo, and it's not working now. Anyway, um, so um, Jonathan came up and was like, my phone and everybody's phone around me kept going, Doo-doo. like you kept making Siri wanting to know what's going on. Assyrian. Anyway, uh, so uh, <laughs> here we have this language of burden, language of of being bondage. What's going to happen with the Assyrians when they do this? But now, he's saying, all of this will be broken. This is just, I mean, one of the best gospel presentations, and I know I'll come back to it all the time, but one of the best gospel presentations is in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, where he uses similar language that's happening here. If you have no idea how to invite people to Jesus... Just read Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It's one of the most beautiful invitations to rest in the gospel ever. Listen, Matthew 28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke that's being described, the the weight on the shoulders, the rod of the oppressors are now being broken. Here's hope in a sense of hopelessness. You can have gospel rest with Jesus. There's more hope. There's more hope. In this seeming hopelessness of chapter 8, he gives even more hope. The last one is in verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This happened? Why? Why do they do that? Because the battle's over. You ain't got to fight no more. Put it in the fire. The war's over. The piece of hopelessness is that the gospel brings peace with God. There's no longer... Any battles to be, to be fought. Jesus is saying, I've, I've already fought the whole battle. You can burn the shoes. You can burn the, the rags that had blood on them. The battle's over. I fought the battle for you. I defeated Satan, sin, and death. Everything's been happened. A demonstration of peace has been made. You can throw away your war-torn boots and your blood-stained garments. You can pile them up in the city square. You can set them on fire and have a celebration. I'm holding out hope to let you know that I have fought the battle for you, and it's all over. That's an amazing sense of hope, of, of hope being given to hopeless. Just hear all this. Families are being included into the nation of God. Your joys increase because you get to live spiritually. The, the burden and the staff and the rod are all being broken now because of Jesus, and the battle is over. Christ is coming and speaking all kinds of hope into hopelessness. There's more, though. There's one third promise. 
The third, third promise is of Christ's coming is uh, bringing God into godlessness. That's where we see in verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Now, I want, I want to make you amazing readers. The goal of reading the Bible is becoming the most excellent reader of the scriptures so that when you read it, you can read it like they did um, the, the original readers. I was going to say first century, but these aren't the first century. The goal of reading the Bible is reading it in the way that the original audience heard. So before we get to 9-6, you need to read, and I know you've heard this before, 7-14 so that you're, you have your alert on. And so you've got 7-14 in the back of your mind and so that when you get a couple of chapters over to 9-6, you're like, whoa, that's it, that's it. So here we go. Look at 7.14 with me. 7.14. This is in the middle of these promises that the Lord is making to Israel um, as there's despair coming. Look at 7.14. For behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Does this sound remotely familiar to anything in the New Testament? This is Mary, by the way. Um, The virgin shall conceive and bear witness and, and bear a son. And notice this. And shall call him... Emmanuel, literally God with us. So they're already thinking as 9-6 promise comes, wait a second, in 7-14, which they didn't have numbers and references, I know. We've already heard two chapters ago that there's a baby that's going to come, and that baby literally represents God's presence. Okay, where we are right now, and the series are coming in, God's presence, not so much felt. We're not feeling hope-filled at all. This is, this is a bad environment, and I'm not feeling the presence of the Lord. But he's telling me that he's given me some hope. And he's going to tell me, and just here in 9-6, that a baby's going to be born. And that baby, and this place where I am, doesn't feel like there's any kind of presence of the Lord. But if I hear anything about a baby, it means Emmanuel, God's going to be with us. So imagine now the fullest, as we can get, fullest sense of Israel hearing the, the despair of the situation. And he looks at them, and they desperately want God's presence to be there, to, to make them safe, to make them secure. They want temporal safety instead of eternal safety. They're thinking small, and God's thinking big picture. But hear this. Here's how the Lord looks at them, and he says, knowing that we've heard 714 now, and that baby equals God, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Whoop! That means God's coming. Emmanuel's coming. That's God with us. That means God is going to come now. Imagine the hope that enters into them. God is coming into godlessness in this particular time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Wait, what did you say? We're about to lose everything. Our government is completely about to be overthrown. And you're promising Emmanuel God with us. And not only that, you're saying of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. It's about to end. And you're saying that will never end. That sounds strong. That sounds awesome. That sounds hope-filled. This is the message that he gives them. Now it happens, Jesus comes 700 years later and the second advent is still yet to come. We're still kind of, in a sense, like them waiting for that to happen in the second coming. But God's timetable is not our timetable. And he is not bound to our desires to make everything happen right now. 
When he does, it will be absolutely perfect. But we still need to, even like them, hear this and say, that gives rest to my soul. All of my joy now should be directed straight towards him. And all my hope and all my heart and all my love and all my joy, everything is found solely in him. I want to make sure that you see how God is speaking into godliness. There's, there's four descriptions of Jesus. Jesus in the gospel is, is a few things. First, he's the wonderful counselor. This wonderful counselor is, of course, speaking of the supernatural ability of Jesus to speak ultimate wisdom into every situation. He's the perfect counselor. Like when you need counsel, you can go to him and he'll give you perfect counsel. But there's a second way to think about this. Um, for all of you that have had to, you know, your tangles with the law and you need an attorney, another synonym for attorney is a counselor. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Here's why you need it. So um, we, we got a new sweater. Uh, I'm sitting in my house, you know, scanning for praying mantis this week. And as I'm scanning for praying mantis, I'm seeing aqua fuzzies, literally everywhere. They're on our clothes. If you look at Aiden's shirt, he's covered right now. Like, they're, they're, they're everywhere on the floor. They're on the Christmas tree. They're, they're on the praying mantis. They're literally, like, everywhere. Aqua fuzzies everywhere. And I'm like, Christy, why do we have aqua fuzzies, like, everywhere? I mean, I think Tristan's eating five. Like, what's going on? And she's like, well, um, I washed a new shirt of JC's, a sweater, and when that happened, it just got in everything. This is exactly what sin does. When sin enters, like, this wretched sweater... It permeates everything, and everything is now covered with sin. And so what we need desperately, desperately, is for the permeation of sin to be forgiven. We need for someone to come and bear the weight of the penalty. And our wonderful counselor, our attorney in the courtroom of God, is slamming down the gavel and saying, You're justified. All of your sin that's permeated you, I have absorbed the full wrath of the Father. All of that permeating sin of you is now, you're no longer a slave to sin. But now, you're a child of God. And all of the sin has been put on me that, that permeated you. It was everywhere. You could not get rid of it. The problem wasn't your sins, small, small s with a plural. The problem was a capital S, sin, that you couldn't deal with, but he dealt with. And because of that, our counselor has bore the wrath of God for us, forgiven us, and slams down the gavel and looks at you and said, justified, innocent, righteous, no longer a sinner. The permeation of that sin in you that's everywhere, gone. Wonderful counselor. The amazing part of that story is that he's not just the lawyer, right? He's the one that takes the punishment. He's the wonderful counselor. This is God entering into godlessness. The second one, he's the mighty God. He's the mighty God. In Isaiah 10, verse 21, it speaks of this. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now, we would read that and think that's talking about God the Father. But we hear over here in Isaiah 9 that... A baby will be born, and he will be the wonderful counselor of the mighty God. So as we read over, now we can go over to chapter 10 and say, oh, that mighty God in 1021 is Jesus. He's the mighty God. He's the warrior. He's the one that de definitely will defeat his enemies, Satan, sin, and death, for all of us on our behalf. We have no shot 
Zero shot at defeating Satan, sin, and death. But the battle's over. Burn the boots and, and burn the claws because he's already fought it for you. You don't have to fight it. He is our mighty God. He defeats his enemies. Next, he's the everlasting father. Now, that can be tricky. What about the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Let's, let's be sure we understand this. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. In, invoking the Tetragrammaton, the, the Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H, the I am. And that just means I am. He invokes that and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, they understood that to be God. Only God the Father. And he looks at them and he says, before Abraham, okay, so I'm standing here right here before you, alive. And before Abraham was even born, I am. I was alive then too. I am the eternal Son of God. Therefore, when you look at the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's not some like first place, second place. It, it, he doesn't get to wear the gold and I have to just wear the silver over here and maybe they'll play my song one day. Look, no, no, at second. Instead, he's helping you understand that in the Trinity, though there is deference of the Son to the Father's will, there's absolute equality when it comes to deity. Jesus and the Father are equal in their deity. Jesus defers to the will of the Father by being obedient all the way to the point of the cross. But that in no way does not, it doesn't make him less than the Father. They are equal when it comes. So when we see everlasting Father, it's helping us see that Jesus is equal in deity to the Father. Not only that, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And all that's coming for them, where Assyrians are going to wreck their land and desire peace, he's the Prince of Peace. He's going to establish his government one day. But there's another way to think about this Prince of Peace. It's not just out there Assyrians attacking Israelites. Jesus is the Prince of Peace for you. Romans 5.8 That while you were an enemy of God, while you were an enemy of God, the Prince of Peace, while you were still an enemy, was willing to go to the cross and save you. I want to read the verse... So you hear it exactly. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. So when we hear that he's the prince of peace, we should, we should individualize it as well. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, with no desire to know him, Christ died for us. He reconciles his enemies to himself. He's the prince of peace. Us freely being reconciled to him only because of his grace. That, that should lead to joy. He's the promised savior of the throne of David. You can see that in verse 7, the throne of David. He's the promised savior. God is coming into godless, godlessness by being the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and the promised savior of the Davidic kingdom where he will establish his kingdom forever. Imagine this. You're an Israelite. You know you're about to be overthrown by the Assyrians. You want your, your temporary circumstances to be changed. You want everything to happen because of a series of willful sinfulness of not obeying God. It's gone bad and you're begging the Lord to make things right. And Isaiah the prophet comes to you with a word from the Lord and tells you this. Don't worry. 
a baby's going to be born, a Messiah. And he's going to set everything right. You don't know if it's going to happen in your lifetime or not. And it's not. Does this bring you joy? Does this bring you hope? It does for them. I want you to listen to uh, how Ray Ortland uh, writes about our coming future as he's looking at Isaiah 9. This child is the king to end all kings. Saving us from our failure, lifting us into his own justice and righteousness. He is Christ Jesus the Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Savior. He would not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction to all systemic evil forever. That is the best part of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. Hear that. Of the increase in his government and of his peace, there will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand. Our finite minds cannot conceive this completely, but let's push our minds and think. If we will live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength, accepting uh, his folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come a moment when we will say, this is the limit. God cannot think of anything new now. We've seen it all. That will never happen. No, the finite us will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. The every new moment and every new moment will be better than the last. Ever increasing joy there is no limit and no end to the ever increasing joy not in stuff not in the fact that you're forgiven not in doctrine not in being obedient ever increasing joy in Jesus Christ alone the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this let's pray